Hey, good morning. Welcome to Grace Point Church. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here, and I'm grateful to you for being here. Thanks for making it this morning. What a great song we sang, yeah? Yeah. Woo! I mean, I'm seriously, on Christ's solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. If that's not an encouragement to you, then I don't know what, what can be, because this is a pretty amazing thought, that everything else is a sinking sand, and on Christ, the solid rock I stand. You know it, and I know it. There's a ton of things that are wanting to pull you down, discourage you, and, and get in your mind and your heart, and on Christ, the solid rock I stand. Good stuff. Thank you, worship team, for, for leading us in that, all right? Hey, um, so good to see you guys this morning, and if you're listening online later, thanks for doing that later. You are catching us in the third part of what is a six-part series called Fearless, uh, caught in the stare down is our subtitle. And as I mentioned the first two weeks, this is not about actually becoming someone who's fearless, as in losing all fear, because that's not possible, nor is that wise, right? There's an idea that some fear is good, right? It keeps you alive on the road, right? I mean, you don't drive right through a red light because of the fear of what might happen. But rather, this is a series about fearing a little bit less than what you might used to be fearing. And so the idea being when you're caught in the stare down of certain moments of your life and fear comes to you and really the question of should I or shouldn't I, you know, what's wise or what's foolish, you know, do I do this or do I do that? And in that moment when, when the fear comes into your mind of what might be, we want to encourage you to fear the outcomes just a little bit less, and trust in your God just a little bit more. And the way we're trying to get around this is by looking at a a man in the Old Testament whose name was Daniel as a young guy, first of all as a 15-year-old in it, and then growing up until about 85 years old. So you have the full life cycle of somebody to look at. And learning from him about the fear that he encountered and the way that he stepped into that. So last week we met Daniel in the Babylonian kingdom and he was tasked with something impossible. And King Nebuchadnezzar said to him, Daniel, I want you to tell me what my dream was and interpret it for me. Don't just interpret it, but tell me what my dream was. And Daniel was put in an impossible situation and he ended up trusting in his God and coming to Nebuchadnezzar telling him the dream and leaning into his God. And so we really ask the question for us, do we believe that we have a God who can handle our impossible situation, even if it doesn't turn out the way that we might like it too? And that was kind of last week's deal of not knowing the future, not knowing what might be, but stepping into to trust with God anyway, right? This week, we veer off a little off course from Daniel to three of his friends. Now, if you've been in um, Sunday school growing up as a young person, or maybe even this morning, who knows, but there may have been, uh, like there was in my life, there was flannel graph. Anyone experienced flannel graph before? Yeah, we have a couple of flannel graph people, all right. So in the flannel graph story, we have um, three characters named Shadrach, Meshach, and isn't that awesome? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if you're not from the church world, the church background, don't worry about that. You don't even remember those names. Those are just people who've been in church for a long time, just told you the story, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are three guys who were taken captive from Israel and brought into Babylon. And they are put into a really tough situation of what they're going to choose to do. And so we're going to look at that in a minute. Now, If you would like to, you can turn in your Bible to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3 is where the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be found. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't own one, uh, that Bible in the pew around you is our gift to you this morning. You can take that home and own that. That's our our way to kind of give to you what we believe is a very important, not just a book, but very
very important uh, word from the God of the universe to us, so that's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. So Daniel chapter 3, it's, you know, kind of find the, the middle in, um, in the Psalms, and then good luck with Daniel, all right? Keep, keep going a little bit further past the Psalms, and you'll end up finding books like uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel, and then you'll land up in, in Daniel, okay? Um, there, so find that. Now, just to kind of think with me a little bit about this before we read the story, all right? Um, here's what we know. Everybody, this is going to be really profound. Uh, you're going to be so impressed uh, with my intelligence in a moment. All right, everyone makes decisions. Mm-hmm. All right, and here's what we know about decisions, that there are some decisions that are easy and some decisions that are hard. Amazing, this is very good, all right? You're already duly impressed with my ability to lay out what is quite obvious in front of us, all right? Some decisions are easy and some are hard. Now, decisions that are easy, right? What, what uh, you know, hot dog or hamburger for lunch, all right? Um, you know, do I wear this shirt this morning or another one? You know, whatever. What do I do when my kids do something wrong? You know, relatively easy, but, you know, hard decisions. We just kind of know intuitively what they are, right? Like, who am I going to marry? You know, where am I going to live? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. What am I going to do for a career? And, you know, how do I handle the, the sickness that comes to me? And what do I do with money and all that stuff, right? How do I handle relationships? That can be tough, right? So easy and hard. So easy decisions are easy, right? And, and hard decisions are hard. Again, you're impressed by my profound ability to think this morning, right? Here's a question for you, though. Have you ever stopped to think about what is it that makes hard decisions harder than easy decisions? Like, what is it that is the differentiating factor between easy and hard? Why does something go from being easy to one person to hard to somebody else? What makes a decision hard? What is the quality? Is there some kind of overriding quality about decisions that are hard, that you know are hard, that I know are hard for me? Why are they hard? And as we think about that, here's something I want to suggest to you. As I have thought about that issue this week, and it's at play in our story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, hard decisions, the harder the decision is for you, the closer to your identity is where you're going to find the answer to that decision. The harder the decision is, the further you have to look inside of yourself to find out who you really are and figure out what guiding principle will help me moving forward. With an easy decision, I don't need to really think about my character, my integrity, my values, if I want a hot dog or a hamburger for lunch. Easy, right? Easy stuff. If I want to, you know, get a, a, a long sleeve or a short sleeve shirt out of the closet this morning, you know, which one was it? I stood there for about a half a second and I grabbed what was there and threw it on. Easy. I don't have to think about that at all. Hard decisions. Where am I going to live? In the city or the country? What do I value the most? What kind of career am I going to jump into? Am I going to be the kind of guy? How much am I going to be worried about the money that I can make in the decisions that I make? In the relationship that I'm in now, should I stay in this relationship or should I go? These are harder decisions. Where do I go to college? You know, where, where do I go to school? You know, what, what kind of what resolution can I come through in the conflict that I'm in? These are hard decisions. And here's my, here's my view, my opinion, that when you make decisions that are hard, it tells the world around you something about who you are. And it reinforces something about who you are to you. It's been said that um, you make decisions and then those decisions make you, 
Right? You've heard that before. You make the decision, and then the decision makes you. In the hardest of decisions, as you're trying to figure out what do I do, in truth, what you're really asking is what is the guiding principle that will help me move forward in something that's unclear for me to do? Like, should I value making more money or living closer to family? Which is more important? To me, it becomes an identity issue. Should I leave or stay? Because if I leave, then I get out of the tension of it. But if I stay, you know, I stay with my friends in this. You know, what's more valuable to me? It becomes an identity issue. What is it that drives your behavior? Should I seek to marry this person? Oh, but they're really kind of cute and kind of awesome too. So who should I, you know, start dating? And that tells you something about what you value as an individual. And so hard decisions are hard, in my opinion, because they force you to be very introspective and very thoughtful about your values and your identity and your faith, if you have faith in God or not. So as we talk about this this morning, what I want to talk about and what is revealed in the story of Daniel chapter 3 is a moment in time where three guys are stuck on a very difficult decision, and they make a decision that reveals their biggest guiding value that when stuck on, should I stay or should I go? Should I give in? Should I not compromise? You know, what should I do? That there's something that comes out very clearly that gives them direction in the hardest of decisions that becomes a guiding principle for them to make difficult decisions. And it's a very insightful perspective in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego beyond flannel graph. It takes us beyond there into seeing what is it that should guide us in the hardest of decisions that we make. Because if you're anything like me, in the hardest decisions, we get caught in the stare down of our fear of the future. What will happen if I, and what will happen if I don't? And I'd like to inject in there a little principle from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to help you as you're trying to decide, what do I do? How do I handle? How should I lead? How should I serve? How should I parent? How should I be a, a good girlfriend, boyfriend, fiance, husband, wife? How do I do these things well? And I'd like to suggest a principle that in the hardest of moments can be brought back to and thought about and, and moved into, right? So if you're in Daniel chapter 3, let's go there right now, and we're going to read a little bit of this story. Now... You should know that uh, Daniel 3 uh, opens up uh, in a, in a um, time in Babylon's history. In Babylon, you should know, is the world power right now. Uh, what typically happens when a ruler takes over, and King Nebuchadnezzar took over um, from his dad, I believe his dad's name was Nabopolassar, isn't that a neat name? So he took over from him, and in short order, once a new king takes over, there is, just like there is in the United States, there's um, like an inauguration ceremony. So we will have an inauguration event with a new president, great celebration and a gala and all kinds of, kinds of stuff, and it really serves to solidify this guy is the king. He's the one who's in charge. He's the president. He's the ruler. And you kind of bring the nation together in a way, symbolically, to say this guy's now in charge. That often happens early in the reign of a king. It just makes sense to do that. And so we believe in Daniel 3 that we are in that situation in Babylon now, that this was what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing is creating an event where people are brought together under his leadership. And so the reason I bring that up is this, because uh, our first message, we covered Daniel when he was 15 years old. Last week, we talked about Daniel when he was 18 or 19. And I believe we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when maybe they're in their early 20s. Maybe. So these are young people, again, young adults now, leading us into 
How do we make healthy decisions with our faith and with this God that we claim to serve, all right? So here we go in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now let me pause it. For those of you of flannel graph background, you already have that old thing popping in your mind, right? And, and in uh, your mind, you might be thinking of a big old statue of King Nebuchadnezzar himself, you know, somehow shaped or crafted into the image of a king, whatever kings look like, you know, that's what he looked like. We truthfully don't know what this is an image of. You should know Babylonians were what we call polytheistic, meaning they worshipped just about anything they could. Not unlike Hinduism today, in which you can grab all kinds of gods and have a whole myriad of gods and just kind of pray to whatever works, make sure you cover everybody. Not unlike in the New Testament where Paul encounters people, what they call the Areopagus, and says that there, you have a, an altar to an unknown god. Let me tell you about that unknown god. You know, just to cover all the bases, we're going to worship all the gods, and then certainly there's an unknown one, so we're going to cover them all. Babylonians were like that. And so the idea here is that we don't know what this image is, but it's likely that this image is some kind of combination of you know, animals or people or kind of fable, uh, fabled creatures that are there, this, this kind of representation of the religion of Babylon, that is that we worship whatever we can and here's some kind of leading gods. It's not just a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar necessarily, all right? So this is really a, an issue where we're looking at come together to worship this, this, uh, this statue that represents all of our, our, um, our religion and our worldview. So verse 2. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So we're going to have a party around this image. And so all these people, verse 3, satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, and I don't know how he did this, if he used a microphone or he just yelled or what he did, all right? But he said, this is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And then whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And have a good day. Here we go, all right? I mean, they're really warm and welcoming. That's one way to, you know, demand attention, demand worship. Hey, wouldn't that be awesome if we did that here? Welcome to worship, everybody. Let's stand and sing, or we're going to execute you, all right? So uh, let's get up and worship with all of our hearts, okay? That's kind of what's happening here, right? Like, at the sound of the music, everybody get down and worship this image of gold that, that we've set up. Why? Because King Nebuchadnezzar wants to know that everybody has gathered around the Babylonian... I'm going to use this word ethos, all right? The Babylonian values and culture. The very thing that we say, this is us as Babylonians. This is who we are. This represents us. We are pledging our allegiance to be Babylonians. You know, we are Penn State. We are Babylonians. That doesn't work that way. But you know, that's the idea that as you... As you worship, it's just this signal that, you know, I stand and pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. It's that kind of moment, 
get down and worship and pledge your allegiance. You are Babylonians. We are Babylonians. Hoorah. Let's all worship this big statue, right? And that's the kind of feel that is here. It's not so much, please worship the king because he's awesome, although he would actually want that. We'll see that later on. But it's more of a call to worship the cultural values of Babylon. That's a very important thing to think about as we think about decision-making that we have to make. All right? We'll get back to that in a minute. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all this stuff, right, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the people's nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some tattletales came forward and denounced the Jews. Astrologers is what my, ver- my version says, right? But they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of all this stuff all right, must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever doesn't fall down will be thrown into blazing furnace. Remember that decree, Maine? But there are some people sitting in the back row who are the Jews, all right, whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Well, that's a bummer, isn't it? So now we have an issue. And now we have an angry king who's having to deal with people in authority that he has put in authority who are not coming down to bow down and worship what he has set up. So, verse 13. A little upset, Nebuchadnezzar, all right, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, let me give you a second chance. When you hear the music and all these instruments, I don't know if they sound good or not, but they probably do. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image of gold that I made, then very good. But if you do not worship it, then you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then he asks this question. It's an amazing question. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Because I am God. What a statement of pride. What, what God? Why don't you go ahead and name him? Because all the gods are on that statue. I'm King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at my success. Look at my money. Look at my reputation. Look at my career. I mean, who's over top of you? Could you remind me of who I report to in the world? Who's better than me? Who's stronger than me? Who's wiser than me? Can you please remind me? So what God do you have that's going to save you from my hand? Because I figured life out. What God do you have? What, what an arrogant statement. You would have hoped this king would have learned from Daniel chapter 2 when his dream was interpreted by Daniel that he's not going to rule forever, but he doesn't get it yet. But what an arrogant statement of pride that he makes. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Wow. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? But you ask the question, what God? Well, let me tell you, the God that we serve. So here's, here's the moment for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, in their early 20s, we believe. 
There's a blazing furnace. They know the story of, of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. They know that he's not bluffing. This is not like a, a parent who might say, if you do that one more time, I'm going to. I'm serious this time if you do it one more time. I'm really, really serious if you really do that again. I mean, this is like you don't do it one time and they kill you, okay? I mean, it's just they know that's the deal. They're like, listen, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, okay? The God that we serve can rescue us from your hand. And then they make another amazing statement in verse 18. Check it out. But even if, that even if he does not, and let us make it clear to you, O king, that he's in charge and not you. If he allows us to die in that furnace, it is his choice to allow it and not your power to control it. Even if he does not rescue us because we are not God, we are submitted to him. So even if... When I make this decision, really bad things happen to me. Even if I make this decision in the unknown and I die in that process, even if, even if he chooses not to save me the way I want to be saved, I just want you to know. We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Woo! You know, wow, there's Nebuchadnezzar standing there. And so he's like, that's cool, guys. You don't have to bow down. I really like your integrity. Like, no, I mean, you can imagine. So the story continues, and I'm not going to read all of, all of that, but he's, he's so mad. He's so furious that if you know the story, he turns the thermometer up, turns whatever the thing up seven times hotter. And we think that's just a, a figure of speech to say immensely hotter than the furnace ever would have been. Now, in truth, if he would have been thinking and not so full of rage, he would have turned it down, right, and burned them slowly rather than fried them quickly, all right? I mean, but he's just, angry people do dumb things, and that was a dumb thing. You don't, you know, don't do that. So he turns it way up, and if you know the story, then the strongest guards are brought, and they take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into this furnace, which we archaeologists would, would say have uncovered, basically kind of an hourglass-looking shaped thing. So there's a kind of a door on the bottom of that hourglass, and you can almost imagine a walkway or kind of a runway into that. So that door opens, and they go into that, that, that furnace, and that door will remain open. But as the guards even are getting there, the furnace is so hot that the story will say that it kills the guards, the strongest of guards in there. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the furnace. And then as, as Nebuchadnezzar is back a distance watching his judgment be carried out and watching no God be able to rescue him from his hand. He sees, and some of you know this, he sees a fourth person walking around in the fiery furnace, which is an amazing issue to consider. Who is that fourth person? We don't know. You know, Bible scholars will say maybe it's an angel. Some people say maybe it's, uh, you know, what, uh, what they call a... Uh, maybe it's an early showing of Jesus. Okay, we don't know what really is going on in there, who that fourth person is. But basically, here's what happens. In verse 25, he said, I'm at verse 25, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. You can just imagine that. Here come these people out of the furnace. No one comes out of the furnace. Who comes out of the furnace? So they all came over. They crowd around them to see with their eyes, does this really happen? They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. 
Their robes were not scorched. There's no smell of fire on them. That's an amazing statement. I sit by a campfire and I got to go change in about an hour because I stink of the smoke, right? I mean, that happens to us. Not even their clothes smelt of this. Nothing smelled of this. And so, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. And then he makes this statement. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Now, I don't know what you want said at your funeral. All right? I don't know if you've thought about that, what the kind of legacy is that you'd like to leave and what it is that you'd like people to say about you at your funeral. Here's a statement. It'd be amazing to have said that they trusted in him, this person, you put your name in there. He, she trusted in him and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. That at every level, in every way, in every decision that they made, their biggest filter and the hardest of decisions was I'm not just going to go with what's easy with what my culture values, with what people are pushing me toward. I'm not going to go with what's easy. I'm going to go with no matter what, what is it that my God wants me to do? Even if it means giving up my life for this. Even if it means giving up my life for this. It's an amazing statement of legacy. Verse 29, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their house be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted them in the province of Babylon, and they lived happily ever after, and then they did a Disney movie about it, okay? But that's the story, right, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so here's the so what, all right? Here's some things that we need to think about in this. Number one, we talked about this already, but we make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. We make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. So as you are thinking about, as you're in your own life right now, thinking about, okay, I'm, you know, whatever, where do I go to school? Who do I date? Who do I marry? How do I handle the money? I have sickness. How do I do that? I have a family conflict. How do I handle that, right? I have a, a, an ongoing battle with cancer. I don't think I'm going to win that. How am I going to deal with that, okay? Um, I've got a, a, a problem in the workplace, and this is really stressing me out. I'm pushing on this. I have, I have a marriage problem that people don't know about. What am I going to do? So in the hardest of decisions... The filter that you use to help guide you, the way that you think about your future on that issue will make you into something that otherwise you would not be. If you choose path A, you will become that person. If you choose path B, you will become more like that person. I was listening this week to a a lady named Ruth Chang. She gave a talk, um, actually a TED talk. And um, she has turned herself into, if you will, a philosopher, okay? And she, she acknowledged this. She said, um, coming out of college, that she uh, wanted in her mind and heart to, to be a philosopher. But then she thought, well, who wants an armchair philosopher sitting around talking to you about whatever? There's just not value in that. And so I need to be a lawyer. I need to make money, right? I need to find my way in the world. And you don't really need someone else sitting in a chair being a philosopher. What we need is someone else to, to be a good lawyer and all that. Now, what she's saying is that in that process, she decided to be a lawyer. And in making that decision, she realized, you know what? I don't even want to do this. I don't even like to do this. This isn't really what I want or need to do. In fact, it just was made because it was the easy choice to make. And so here's a second point of encouragement is this. We tend to drift to what's easy. When we're making decisions and they're hard ones, our default is to drift toward what's easy rather than stay on what's hard. Our 
tendency is to move there. And she would say this, that what's easier to, to move into a career where I have a guaranteed future, as guaranteed as you can have it, you know, where I can be a lawyer, or to be a, a philosopher. What even does that mean? How does that pay the bills? What do I do? And as she went down the path of lawyering, she realized, you know what, I am not for this. I'm not behind this. I don't even like this. It doesn't grab my heart and my passions and my interests. I don't really like this. And so she made the move back to what was hard, and that is I want to do and I want to be a philosopher. But here's the thing that we know, that we tend to drift toward what is easy. We just tend to do that. Now, here's the other thing that we know about our decision-making process, that as we look back, our life's most valuable moments have come through hard times and not easy ones. Isn't that true? That as you look back on your life, the things that have shaped you the most have not been the easy vacations on the beach. You rarely look at those and say, man, I was so changed when I had nothing to sacrifice and nothing was asked of me and I just got to sip on drinks all day long. I mean, it was just amazing how formative that was for me and how much I learned about myself. We all know that's not true. We all know that the most formative times of our lives are the times that are the hardest, not the times that are the easiest. And yet we also know that in making hard decisions, we tend to drift just as people toward what's easy. Even though we know, even though we know in the back of our mind that God uses trials, struggles, stress to teach us both about his character and who we are in the process. So here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego put before the Babylonian courts, kingdom, said, what's it going to be? We got the whole culture that you have to worship right here. Come on, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do in the hardest moment of your life? And they say, we don't need to answer to you. There is a God that we serve who can rescue us from your hand. But if he chooses not to, we still want you to know that we would rather serve him than worship any of the gods that you have. It reminds me of, of Job. You may have heard the story of Job, this Old Testament guy who lost his family, his business, and his home in the process of God's refining of his life. And Job makes a statement in chapter 13, I think it's verse 16 in Job, that he says, even if he slay me, still I will serve him. It's an amazing statement. Even if he kills me, I'm going to serve my God. There are few people who can make that statement like that, especially in the context of Job. This is after he has lost so much. Even if he slay me, still I will serve him. And so here's where we find ourselves. There was a 2010 Pew Research study done on millennials, ages 18 to 29, just four years ago now. And the question was, essentially, what um, is the most important thing in life for you? All right, what, is, what is it that you would say is the most important and if we can figure that out, then generally we tend to make decisions toward what is most important because we want to line up our lives with what is most important. And so here's the results of that study, and here's what millennials ages 18 and 29 say would be the most important things. Some of this is good, and some is, we'll, we'll see what it is. Number one, being a good parent, 52% said that, being a good parent. Number two, having a successful marriage, helping others in need, owning a home, living a very religious life, having a high-paying career, having lots of free time, and then finally becoming famous. Okay? Now, I've had time to piece that together, and as I piece that together and think about the statements I read there and the research done by the Pew Research Group just four years ago from 18 to 29, here's what that is essentially. That, that is the package of our culture of the American dream to you. 
I mean, isn't it? Get married, settle down, buy a house, be independently wealthy or at least self-sufficient, and then you know what? Teach your kids to do the same thing. Be safe, be comfortable, make the easy decisions that will line you up with what our culture worships. Come before our 90-foot God and worship him with us. And why would you not? Because after all, we are Americans. Isn't there an allegiance to that that we should share? And in the moments of deciding what your life will become, you know, the music sounds and the question is, am I going to pledge allegiance to the American dream and all of which it stands for? Am I going to pledge allegiance to all that this culture offers in terms of ease and luxury and self-gratification? Stand three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who say, there is a God that even though he slay me, even though he may not save me from this, my life will be determined by my obedience to him first of all and my faithfulness to him first of all. And so when the decisions are hard, do I want to move to a job to make more money? Do I need to make a change in my marriage? Do I need to? You don't know how hard it's going to be for me to do the right thing. That's right. When you're in the state of the moments of the hard decisions you have to make and you know, you know what God would want you to do. You know what is right to do, but it is so hard. Here stand three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, young adults, who say, I don't need to defend the decision. I just want you to know I serve a God that even if the decision that I make results in my family disowning me, results in people being angry with me, results in whatever bad may come, even if it results in me dying, I still am going to choose a life that at the macro level that I am going to run everything through the grid of am I going to be obedient and faithful to the God of the Bible in every little area of my life. This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. And the challenge for us is this drift that comes, to drift toward what's easy, to drift toward what will require less of you in terms of a leader, what will require less of you in terms of being a parent, what will require less of you in terms of being a loving wife and faithful husband. What will require less of you is the drift and the pull. And yet we all know the most impressionable moments, the most important moments in our life have come when God has shaped us and moved us through very, very difficult circumstances. So here's my encouragement to you. As you keep walking now, as you keep walking through your marriage, through your singleness, through your finances, through your parenting, through the conflict that you experience, through the challenges of the unknown future with your children or with your parents, what is it that God wants me to do? And do I trust in him enough that even though he may not deliver me the way I want him to deliver me, even if it doesn't work out the way I want it to work out, I am still going to make the decision that I know, that I know is faithful to my God, even if it's very, very difficult. And we serve a God who I believe is big enough and strong enough to deliver us, move us, shape us, and change us in that process. And what a legacy to leave to your children, to the next generation, to say, ah, they were someone who walked before me, and no matter what, man, they made the tough decision to honor and serve their God no matter what. And this is a story 
three men beyond flannel graph, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to make the decision to move into what is difficult for the glory of God, for the shaping of their character, for their future. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for men and examples like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who while a, a fun Bible lesson in Sunday school are also a challenging and convicting message to us as adults and children and teenagers, young adults in every stage of life. This is a real challenge to consider keeping in the forefront of our mind a service to God that goes beyond our cultural values that sometimes flies right in the face of an American dream and the, the appeal, the glittering gold of a life of luxury and a life of, of ease. Father, give us the courage to remember that we are shaped through the hardest of times, not the easiest of times. Give us courage not to drift into making easy decisions, but to be intentional about the hard decisions in the little things that we do so that we're ready in the big things to make those same hard decisions for our faith and for our God. Father, we love you. We ask for courage, wisdom, and direction to do what we know that we need to do with what we have heard. We love you. We ask for your blessing and direction on us. In Jesus' name we pray.